and we both work and it's, it's just gonna get worse isn't it no wonder why people are in property i work in a bar right, okay. work in a bar so it's friday morning and i'm at Salford shopping centre i can hear the hum of the ventilation system and the music drifting out of shop doors as customers drift in I'm here on the day of the biggest increase in domestic energy prices in living memory to see how it's changing the lives and decisions of some of the hardest hit in Greater Manchester. This is the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris with Yoshi Herman, the editor of The Mill, Manchester's quality newspaper, delivered by email. Welcome along to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly. Yoshi, how are you? I'm doing well. We've missed you. We've had a few weeks without you. It's been a roller coaster <laughs> over a couple of weeks. I, uh, I managed to contract, well, I, I tested positive for COVID whilst away in Belfast, which obviously meant that I couldn't fly being a responsible citizen. I thought I'd better not get on a plane with a, with a contagious disease. So I ended up spending 10 days stuck in a hotel room in Belfast. I've had a lot of time to think, Yoshi, <laughs> in, the last, in the last few weeks. <laughs> uh, do you have to pay for those days? I did have to pay for those days. Yeah, I did. The hotel were brilliant and they brought us breakfast every morning and, and sort of helped us out. But yeah, for sure, I, I, you know, it was it was costly. And actually, it was kind of a reminder. We're going to talk a lot on the podcast this week about cost. It was kind of a reminder that actually, you know, there is, there is still a cost to COVID for those who contract it. There is a cost to getting sick right and and that's just something that we're all ex we all happen to be experiencing on scale don't we i suppose but you can also see why people who couldn't afford to stay in the hotel or they couldn't afford to miss a day of their shift work they're just going to not be taking the test they're just going to be ignoring the public health messages i mean that's been the case all the way through but i guess this is like a stark example like you didn't get on the plane but like no one would have known if you had got on the plane with a mask on and etc etc We've certainly been thrust into a bit of a weird moral dilemma, haven't we, uh, for some people, for sure. We're going to talk this week on the podcast, Yoshi, about those people right at the crosshairs of that kind of thing. The cost of living crisis really starting to bite. We're going to hear from Jack, who we heard from just now. He's been at Salford Shopping Centre, having a look through some of the stores there, meeting some of the people who are right on the front line of that. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that shortly. As well as that, Yoshi, we're also going to hear from Danny from the newsroom shortly, who's been out and about on the streets of Manchester, Yoshi. For what reason? Why did you send her onto the street? Well, Danny sometimes does these nice sort of on-the-street picture essays, and the one that she did this week is really nice. It's little groups of girls, like girl gangs, as it were, like walking around city centre, out shopping, or getting ready for a night out. And she just got little quotes from each one and took some really nice portraits. And like a couple of them, like sort of raise interesting themes about like street harassment and the way they get treated by men out and about in Manchester. So I thought it would be good to have Danny join us and talk about that just briefly. Good stuff. Okay, we'll get to that shortly. Firstly, let's start off with that story then that's reaching into everybody's lives, isn't it, Yoshi? Although some more than others. Jack Dolhanty has been speaking to people in Greater Manchester about the rising cost of living. And as we say, taking stock of the effect on the most vulnerable to feeling its pinch. Jack joins us now. Tell us about the families that you met, Jack. Yeah, so I met three families altogether. The first person I met was Adele, who was with her son, Phoenix, in a shop called Save-A-Lot. 
which is a kind of like discount store that's just got lots of general bits and bobs. It's kind of like some things that maybe the uh, supermarkets won't sell anymore, like Valentine's roses were on sale, for example. And Adele was there picking up sweets for Phoenix's birthday. And she was, for want of a better phrase, an interesting case, but really it was quite tragic in that she was in a situation where she had three kids and one had multiple disabilities. His name was Elijah. And it required her to kind of keep the heating on all the time because he had hypermobility, which made his joints very painful in the cold. And she was trying to weigh up how she was going to afford all of that, along with paying for the petrol to take him to appointments and stuff. So she was a real case study in how these energy prices, depending on who you are, can have really big effects. When we were um, getting this podcast together, Jack, you used the word life and death, right? And, and you pulled back and you said, no, actually, I'm not going to use the word life and death. But then when you hear Adele's story and some of the insights, maybe life and death is an overstatement, but it kind of feels that way. And it must sort of feel that way for them as well, right? Yeah, I think there's still that sense that their lives are being really quite upended. When you imagine that these are people who are already kind of on the edge anyway, already struggling financially, and this blow can be the thing that kind of tips them over the edge. Well, to many people who aren't struggling financially, of course, this sort of thing is inconvenient, but not quite as life-altering. And Jack, why was it that you chose to go to this bit of Salford? Because you obviously grew up in Salford, you know the terrain quite well. Why did you choose to go to the shopping precinct? I've spent a lot of time at the shopping precinct. Also, recently, well, I say recently, a few months ago, I went there for a story about the tower block that comes out the middle of it. And I was struck by the people that I met there. A lot of the people who I went on to interview in those lads I actually met in the shopping centre first. So it was while they were around doing the shopping, I was like, by any chance, do you live here? And, you know, a lot of those people have had really quite difficult lives. And, of course, Salford Shopping Centre, the place where it lands is kind of in this I think in the story it's described as a kind of forgotten hinterland like it's an area of Salford that hasn't seen as much investment as the sort of obvious names Media City Greengate Chapel Street those type of places in terms of deprivation it's some of the most deprived areas in the country here so that kind of drew me to it because I knew that there were going to be people there who would be expecting to experience a much bigger impact from these price increases than say if I went to like worsely you know they're both in Salford but they're, they're entirely different areas with entirely different people living there I like the way you describe it as a hinterland. I used to live there. I used to live at Chimney Pot Park. And when we moved there, we moved there expecting it and, and sort of being sold this idea that it was going to become the ripple effect of Media City was going to hit it soon enough. And uh, Langworthy Road was going to become full of, you know, Northern Quarter style bars and restaurants and shops and things. And that just hasn't happened. I think we throw this term left behind around a lot, don't we? It, it feels like the epitome of that. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it's the epitome of that only because of the, you know, the sheer contrast surrounding it. You know, for one borough of Greater Manchester to have places like Greengate and Chapel Street, but then also someone like Oddsall, which I think when we looked into it, that was one of the most deprived areas in England. A lot of these sort of facilities like Briar Hill Court, they seem pretty much set up for people on housing benefit. But if you're on that kind of benefit, the effect on you of changing prices when it comes to energy, I mean, if these energy prices add £100 or £200 to what you're paying every month, you just 
don't have room in your budget for that. One of your biggest regular costs, your energy bills, is potentially going to double. It might triple. We know that in most of these types of accommodations in low-income households, you have these top-up meters um, rather than your direct debit. So you're having to go out to the shop. You know, it used to be every four days to top up ten pounds, and now it's every two days. It's just it's hard to get your head around how difficult the next six months are going to be for some of those families. Mm. Your piece, Jack, is really brilliant and it's really worth a read. It takes us right onto the front line of uh, the story that, as we say, is reaching into everybody's lives, but oh boy, some more than others. ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you read it. You can subscribe there and read Jack's brilliant piece from Salford Shopping Centre. Yoshi, you've also been working on similar stories in Liverpool and Sheffield, haven't you? Is there something that sort of struck you, Yoshi, as a theme across the stories from various parts of the north of England? The biggest thing that struck me from those stories, and Dan Hayes wrote a brilliant one in Sheffield and Molly Simpson wrote a brilliant one in Liverpool, specifically in Bootle. What struck me was how intentional people are having to be about their spending. I mean, people on low incomes have always had to be more conscious of the extra 50p and the extra pound on on prices but what really came across from the people that we interviewed in those different cities were just how much mental energy is having to go into you know keeping afloat the amount of kind of calculation well i could get this cheaper in this store i could save a bit of gas by cooking this some of those calculations are probably erroneous like like thinking that maybe like pre-mashed potatoes is going to be cheaper than doing it yourself because of the gas saving you know i've seen an expert online say you know that's that's almost certainly not actually going to work but the point is these people in addition to you know not having a lot of money and really worrying about feeding your kids and heating your home you've got this kind of mental anguish of constantly trying to work out you know what i can spend money on what i can't how i can make ends meet that struck me i think another thing that struck me is just how unfair energy price rises are how unfairly they fall on different people because you know in taxation terms economists would talk about a progressive tax or a regressive tax energy prices might not be a tax but effectively to people who pay them they are they're a big lump sum that goes out of your bank account and they're incredibly regressive because yes a a low-income household might have a, a smaller house they might have a lifestyle that involves a little bit less energy they're unlikely to have like a posh, you know, Arga cooker or anything like that. But they're only going to use, you know, 20 or 30% less energy when we've got energy prices going up by one and a half times, two times, for some people, three times. A wealthy person's energy bill is going to go up about as much as someone on really low incomes. And that just feels incredibly unfair. And it feels like the kind of thing where government is going to have to step in a lot more than they are at the moment. All good points. Um, Okay, read more of Jack's piece from the front line of the cost of living crisis in Manchester. Manchester Manchestermill.co.uk. Jack no, thank you. I mean, it certainly puts the next story into perspective, doesn't it? Talking about the cost of living crisis uh, and air travel really as a luxury more than anything else. But we do have a big story from Manchester Airport to consider. And you've probably already seen this somewhere in your feed. And the stories of people struggling to get through airport security for the last couple of weeks. People have been telling horror stories of the chaos at Manchester Airport. Videos of those backlogs through security, stacked luggage going viral. But 
a huge amount of pressure on the operators of the airport to explain themselves. It's come to a bit of a head this week, hasn't it, Yoshi, with an apology and a resignation. Where are we at with Manchester Airport? Oh, Manchester Airport. Well, it looks like a complete mess. I haven't flown through there recently, but clearly a lot of the things that are going out on social media, some of the videos that are going viral of just like absolutely enormous groups of people all trying to get their bags into security, people waiting for hours and hours and hours in in, in, in um, the security queues. It looks terrible. And we've already had the resignation now of the managing director. We have had this apology. What this comes down to, seemingly, is a staffing shortage. This airport, which is a business, it's it's part owned by all the councils in Greater Manchester, with, with Manchester having the biggest share, but it's a business, and it has not planned properly for what was going to happen. Clearly, they laid off too many people during the pandemic. Clearly, they're not paying people enough in the jobs that they're currently offering. Otherwise, they would have filled the vacancies. You know, you go on Reddit and you see people who say they worked at the airport, they were interviewed at the airport saying they were offered like kind of ridiculous shifts, like you have to come out at three in the morning uh, on an unsecured contract with no guaranteed hours and you have to work a four hour shift. And you think if you when you look at stories like that, you think, yeah, it makes total sense that this business hasn't been able to attract the staff it wanted. It laid loads of them off. It offers rubbish conditions, makes unreasonable demands of mostly really low paid workers. It doesn't pay well. There's always a tendency in these situations for organizations to blame global factors and unexpected this and unexpected that. It was obviously expected at this time of year when all the COVID restrictions were lifted, there was going to be a massive increase in passengers. It was obviously expected that you didn't have enough staff if you've laid off loads of them during the pandemic. And here we are. It's, it's a complete mess. Manchester Airport has been one of the big success stories in Greater Manchester over the past five or so years, bringing in loads of revenue for Manchester City Council and the other councils really boosting the economic growth of the city region but now it's an embarrassment and it's a mess and when I was booking a holiday the other day I looked at flights from Manchester they were cheap but I thought no I'm going to fly from London I'm going to be at my mum's before and and, and go from Gatwick even though it's more expensive because I don't want that kind of hassle Mm, that's really interesting yeah very it makes you wonder doesn't it passengers will make a trip down the down the motorway to to Liverpool you know perhaps has, has got a decent airport Leeds Bradford as well is increasing flights recently there are other options beyond Manchester aren't there for, for people to, to choose if they wanted to vote with their feet I would echo your sentiment Yoshi that we can talk about perfect storms all we want we can talk about you know there's obviously there is obviously a perfect storm here there is of course the effects of the pandemic post Brexit changes nobody can honestly say that you didn't expect to have a huge number of people passing through Manchester Airport at this moment in time and that surely should have been planned for the latest on that then is that Karen Smart who is the managing director of Manchester Airport has resigned and Swissport have issued an apology as well for the backlog on their part with baggage as well. It seems to have extended from front desk to security to baggage handlers as well across all areas of Manchester Airport. And we'll keep an eye on that story and we'll bring you any more on it as we get it. Just speaking of transport, Yoshi, while we're on that issue, one of our favourite subjects in Greater Manchester, uh, there has been some news around, and this has been a big theme, hasn't it, of the sort of public transport story in Greater Manchester, funding, who's funding it, how it's going to be funded, and there's been a bit of a development on that this week. 
Yeah, definitely. We've been waiting for a while to see whether Greater Manchester was going to get the kind of funding it needs to implement the really ambitious proposals it has for improving public transport and most specifically improving the bus network. Moving to a franchising system, which we're doing under Andy Burnham's leadership, and effectively having buses under local control so that it's the Greater Manchester Combined Authority or Transport for Greater Manchester that decides the routes and decides the fares. That seems like a very good way to go forward, but it will require massive investment, both capital investment and revenue investment. Now, this week we heard that an enormous amount of investment has been confirmed. We already knew about most of this before last year's autumn statement, but that's been confirmed. There's, you know, more than a billion pounds of government funding is coming into the, into the system. That's going to be used to build new interchanges, to order new buses, that kind of thing. What's missing or semi-missing is the revenue funding. That's the kind of funding you need to reduce fares to actually operate the services. And that's a real concern. I think Andy Burnham thinks he got half of the revenue funding that Greater Manchester bid for. This is something we flagged about a month ago in our newsletter, that people shouldn't get too triumphalist about the changes to Manchester's bus system until there's actually cash to pay for it. There's a lot of money required. We're not talking about a couple of million a year. We're talking like 30 30, 40, 50, 60, 90. There's a year where there's like 120 million pounds of revenue funding required. That's not even including the capital funding. So when you hear that there's a big shortfall in the revenue funding, what you should be thinking as a bus passenger is are my fares going to really be as cheap in this transport revolution as has been promised or has been talked about? I think that's the big concern at the moment. Okay, all really interesting. Big, big numbers as well. Big numbers. We will for sure keep an eye on that. Manchestermill.co.uk is where you subscribe. Yoshi's got a firm eye on those developments, and so we'll bring them to you as they happen. This is a really exciting development. Uh, John Ryland's library, a new sort of exhibition. I'm already thinking of all the things that I'm not going to get done because I've lost hours and hours and hours at a new archive that's open in John Ryland's library in the city centre. Yoshi, what's this about? This is the British Pop Archive, which is going to open at the Rylands um, Library very soon. It is something that people have been sort of been talking about for a while. You know, I've heard people say there's going to be this huge resource that will allow us to understand much more about the Manchester music scene and that kind of thing. And there is definitely a bit of that. It's being put together by John Savage, who's kind of one of the leading chroniclers of 80s, 90s Manchester music. He's a professor of popular culture at the University of Manchester, and he's apparently one of the driving forces behind the project. So you've got things like the collection of of Rob Gretton, who's the manager who oversaw the Joy Division and New Order. Apparently he had just like huge amounts of records, a cellar full of records. So those are going to be in there. And I think a lot of people will be really excited to read those. But there's also just a huge amount of Granada material, because this is not just about pop music, it's about pop culture generally. And the hope here is to kind of not create an equivalence between the kind of really old records that you've got in Rylands and these new ones, but to, I suppose, afford a bit more importance and a little bit more sort of intellectual weight to popular culture in this country. And obviously Manchester feels like the perfect place to have an archive like that. 
I am very excited about this. Really excited about it. And I think the Granada stuff is particularly exciting. I mean, the, these were hugely, hugely influential programs. They were massively important investigative documentaries. They brought perspectives and uh, ideas and stories to, to the mass audiences in a way that wasn't really happening before. And the cultural influence of those and political influence of those programs cannot be overstated. It's going to be really, really fascinating digging through some of those. It's also going to be a British pop archive, isn't it? Which means that it's going to have a Manchester theme to start with for obvious reasons, but it will it will sort of expand itself and over the course of its lifetime will become a broader archive across British pop culture, which is really, really interesting and exciting to have that in Manchester as well, alongside the National Football Museum, of course, which is down the other end of Deansgate. Um, okay, looking forward to that when it arrives. Um, now, something that they should be featuring in the British pop archive in years to come is the stunning photography, the photo essay, produced by the Mills Danny Cole on the streets of Greater Manchester this week. And Danny joins us on the Manchester Weekly now. I'm going to ask you, Yoshi, first of all, why did you send Danny out onto the streets of Manchester with her camera this week? It was actually Sophie who was editing this edition and she wanted Danny to go and capture the kind of groups of girls that you see out shopping, what she calls girl gangs, out and about in the city centre. So Danny went out on a Saturday recently and, and started to take some group pictures. Okay, nice. The girl gangs of Manchester, Danny. Who did you meet? So I sort of stuck around Northern Quarter and then I walked around Market Street and surprisingly I think what Sophie was looking for she was hoping for you know these great gaggles of you know girlfriends of you know groups of three four five six but actually what I found was you know a lot of like pairs um, and then the quite quite small groups so groups of three you know groups of two and I was on the lookout for friends who were sort of twinning in their um, fashion style so people so friends who sort of had you know very very similar dress so I found some watered down emos as they called themselves um, I found some sort of glossier chic girls who were off to weather spoons and then I also found some girls who were sort of dressed in sort of the comfy casual so I suppose the the style that's most associated with the students sort of like you know very loose baggy but sort of layered and the sort of the definition of girl as well I, I wasn't too too strict with it so I did find some teenagers and then I did find some young women in their 20s so um, they were all out and about enjoying themselves and Danny, when you came back from that, taking those photos, you described one group who sort of told you something quite sad, really, about like the way they're treated out on the street by some men in Manchester, which has been a bit of a theme of campaigning in Manchester to stop men from calling at girls and like be harassing them and, and being sexist on the streets. Tell us about that. What sort of reactions do your clothes get sometimes? Do people come up and say, like, oh my gosh, I love your jacket. Oh my gosh, like, where did you get your shoes? Oh. <laughs> I think that's a compliment, I though. I do. Some man came up to me at the bus stop going, you look like a slide home this group of girls it was a group of three they were aged 15 and 16 and I actually caught them outside the Arndale I'm not sure what, what to describe their dress style I think it was sort of the sort of black clothing baggy sort of jackets and then they had fishnet tights and sort of Doc Martens and they, they described their style as um, being quite random and when I was talking to them I said you know um, I really love your style you know I think it's you know it's really cool I said what have the reactions been like to people you know about the way you dress and one of these girls bless her she was only 16 she said oh I was standing at a bus stop and a man came over to me and, and said you know oh you're a slag and you know she was 
dressed you know the style was you know very sort of baggy clothes and you know it looked very cool and it just felt you know in no way was she dressed sort of provocatively not that that's a you know an excuse for you know sexual harassment but you know she was just dressed you know as any sort of cool teenage girl sort of who's into her fashion and music would dress so that was a really surprising um, and really well not surprising but that was a really sad sort of thing thing to sort of come across and then um, another pair of people that I found they said oh you know people call us homophobic slurs or call, call us you know emos and again they were you know they were dressed sort of in no way that should you know be sort of sexually provocative you know it was just sort of casual cool baggy sort of you know the dress that you know young young girls you know wear so yeah it's quite sad really because we think of Manchester is a you know is a friendly place and Manchester city centre is like this huge blending pot of different types of people and then you speak to those teenagers and they obviously are having quite negative experiences just from like random members of the public like did did you sense that it had really like affected them and their confidence or, or, or had they dealt with it okay I think they dealt with it okay I think one thing that really came across was sort of the sort of the friendship and the sort of the bonds that you know young women have because the way they were describing it to me they laughed after oh yeah he came over and he called me a slag um and then you know there was a bit of laughter you know a bit of laughter about it but um obviously it, it must have made her feel very uncomfortable and for you know just for her to be standing at a bus stop doing something you know very normal just waiting for a bus waiting to go somewhere and then to have you know that sort of comment you know directed at her intentionally yeah i think you know it must obviously be emotionally sort of distressing but having that support network of, of those friends you know has been really sort of integral in sort of helping their mental health and helping their confidence mm, that's nice to hear and the the portraits are brilliant really really worth a look manchestermill.co.uk is where you'll find them you subscribe to the mill newsletter some quality journalism in your inbox at manchestermill.co.uk and it's really great to see actually for as long as I can remember Manchester has been a place that people have come dressed how they want to dress dressed as who they are right and we've talked about that quite a bit on this podcast over the, the months it kind of reminds me of your piece at Piccadilly Gardens Danny where you were talking about people coming from the suburbs of Manchester coming into the city centre to be who they are where they where they kind of sort of felt a sense of sort of freedom right and you know as, as, as you say Yoshi a kind of melting pot of all sorts of different kind of styles and cultures nice to see that element of it alive and well though for sure Danny for now thank you appreciate it manchestermill.co.uk to have a look at Danny's lovely pictures and meet those girl gangs of Greater Manchester Yoshi uh, the week ahead my friend is there anything on your radar what should we be looking out for do you think We've got a really interesting piece this weekend by Brian Groom, who's a former journalist at the FT. He's written a book called Northerners, a big history of the North, really, and the, and the people who've made the North of England. He has written a great piece for us about that and, and, and focusing on Manchester specifically. So that's really cool. And our like big sort of look into homelessness in, in Greater Manchester rumbles on, and Jack and I have been working on that this week. Jack's been to a bunch of temporary accommodations to have more conversations with people who are homeless. And mill readers will have read on uh, Tuesday in our members only edition about a really interesting woman who tries to kind of deal with the loneliness and the chaos of, of being homeless by doing TikTok videos about um, about different homeless people that she meets out and about so that one's moving ahead as well lovely and um, out and about in Greater Manchester Yoshi do we have a nod for the week ahead what should we be doing 
Well, something I've been invited along to in Didsbury is a choral concert by Cantos, which is Manchester's professional chamber choir. They've got this sort of evening of dramatic choral music about the passion of Christ, but I don't think you need to be like massively religious to go along and enjoy it. It's the kind of music I probably sang when I was at school. And that is on Friday, 8th of April at 7.30 in Christchurch, West Didsbury. And if that's not your bag on Friday night, another option is Sale Waterside, the Waterside Theatre in Sale. Stephen Venables, who is um, a sort of adventurer and explorer, somebody who has climbed Everest amongst other things. He's a really good guy, Stephen. I've had him on my radio show a little while back to tell me about his adventures. And he's a fascinating talker, a cracking raconteur. And he's got plenty of stories, a bag full of stories. And his sort of tour, his, his stage show thing is a bit of a slideshow. We'll uh, show you some of the stunning images that he managed to get up Everest and on other adventures as well. Really nice, really kind of life-affirming perspective kind of talk on Friday night at Sail Waterside Theatre. If you, you can't manage that this weekend, do try and get to one of the telescope talks at the Jodrell Bank uh, over the next couple of weeks. I think they're running uh, every weekend of uh, April, so there's quite a few options for you to get to and they will have talks from various experts about the history of the Lovell Telescope, the role that it's played in space exploration and human endeavour. I often think, I mean, we sort of all know that Jodrell Bank is there and that it exists, but I think it's really exciting, actually, that we've got right on our doorstep something that's had such a huge, profound impact on space exploration and humans' drive to find out what's going on beyond our world. And you can find out more about that in the Telescope talks running all through April at Jodrell Bank. Um, okay, that's it from us for this week on the Manchester Weekly. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast to get it in your feed. The latest news for Greater Manchester every week in your podcast feed by liking and subscribing and you can subscribe to The Mill. More quality journalism like this in your email inbox. Manchestermill.co.uk is how you do that. Danny, thank you. Jack, thank you. And Yoshi for now, thank you. <laughs>